Welcome everyone to another episode of Growing Design. Today, I'm interviewing my very good friend Bao Vo. I've known Bao for a few years, and he's one of the most amazing designers and creatives overall that I've had the good fortune of working with. Bao, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Bao Vo, and I am a musician, songwriter here in Los Angeles, and I had a long career in the design industry, and before that I was a visual artist as a child for as long as I can remember. So I'm an artist, I guess, and at some point I got into the design industry. I went to the Art Center College of Design for my undergraduate degree and studied environmental design there, which sounds like... It involves nature and sustainability, but it doesn't. Environmental design basically is designing experiences within physical space. And so it's a combination of like architecture, exhibition design, and just experience design, right? And after school, I immediately started working in a design agency as a freelance designer. And this was around when the first iPad came out. <laughs> and that immediately made me want to go into the digital realm. And so I, you know, diverted my career trajectory over to, to the digital realm. And I joined a few advertising, marketing, design agencies that just focused on digital, designing web and, you know, mobile and software experiences. And... So I've worked for small to medium design agencies, but, you know, at one of the medium design agencies, this was before ad agencies had in-house digital teams. And so we were basically the digital ninjas for a lot of global ad agencies for, I guess, three years or two years. And so my experiences, I started as a designer and eventually my experience with communication and leadership brought me to become a creative director. And so I worked for, I think, eight years as a creative director at a couple of agencies, leading a design team of up to a dozen creatives. And just last year, I left a full-time design agency career to, currently I just have very limited consulting gigs, and I write and produce music with the rest of my time, which, you know, it took a long time to work to get up there, but I feel super grateful to be able to do that. So that's where I am now. I'm talking to Ed about, I guess, my experience being a professional communicator. That's so cool. Let's, let's go back a little bit and talk about, so if I understand correctly, environmental design could be understood as a design that's very aware of its context. So it, it's taking into consideration everything that's happening around the design piece. Or is it like designing for, for spaces? Like, is it something like that? Yeah, so you're talking about specifically the program that I went through at the Art Center in Pasadena, right? Yeah, so we had about a year of architecture as our foundation. 
And then from there, we were allowed to branch out into entertainment, such as like production design or uh, set design or whatever. Exhibition design, which is like when you go to Disneyland and you go through <laughs> an exhibition or when you're at like a conference and you're going into a retail exhibition. Or we could do stuff like furniture design and, and product design, industrial design. So we learned all that stuff and it was up to us how we used it. And my, just as an example of how I wanted to use it is my final exhibition was a branded retail environment for Ming and Ping, my band. So, you know, I, I already had on the side, I was doing music even through college. And so I had already a concept that I could ch channel all of these skills into. And so, you know, that involved creating, that exhibition involved creating graphic designs, environmental graphics, costume design, and just like set design. But it's about putting yourself into a your audience's position just to try to empath empathize with them and see how they would react you know through science understand how a normal person would react to the spaces or the the scenarios that you design that you put them in and things that you can't control too so in architecture there's nature and there's you know stuff that you can't design did you ever work professionally as an environment designer or were you more like since the beginning working in, in visuals and like sort of duty? Professionally, I contributed to projects that were environment, uh, physically environmental design projects, but I did not work for like an extended amount of time specifically in that realm. I really focused on digital because that's kind of where, like, I'm a tech nerd, right? <laughs> that's where my interests are. Okay, so you mentioned that you were working for some of these agencies, and you were kind of like, they were they were outsourcing the digital part to you in the early days, where like ad agencies were still very focused on print and like billboards and whatnot. Yeah. And, Sort of like trying to like, okay, we need to hire someone because we don't really know, we need to cover the digital part. That was like a, an add-on to the to the package they were selling. Uh, was that a model that like continued to happen for, for a long time? Or was it like a quick transition and they started like hiring more internal people? That's, that's a good question, Ed. I think the transition for a lot of the like gigantic global ad agencies probably took two years, which for me in the business world is a long, long time. <laughs> you know, like imagine, I don't know, um, a gigantic like McCann or something, a gigantic ad agency for two years having to outsource your or white label their digital resources, like an entire team of digital resources, right? And I think this is a little bit aside from your question, but something that came up during that period was that we, as the digital team, were interacting with and taking orders from people with very old school uh, way of working. 
And so a lot of our job was just educating people that like, no, when you get this design on the web, it doesn't matter where you typeset your, where you line break and, you know, how you typeset your fonts and stuff. It's going to look different on every screen. And that's just one example. But like we had to educate not only our clients, but like we had to get them to understand how their customers are going to see whatever we're producing. And I guess at some point during that transition, you also had the mobile first sort of like movement where we're trying to like educate people that you cannot design for desktop. In fact, more and more websites need to be and products in general need to be mobile compatible because, you know, mobile phones were becoming smart, air quotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's along with the education piece. You know, we just have to constantly remind people every time we come in, every quarter, there's some big change in technology that changed the way that we work as designers. And so that was just one of the things, you know, one out of very many things where we were just like, hey, we can't treat this as a stagnant piece of design anymore. This is an experience and not like a visual piece of design that's that's static. And so some people learn that easier than others, I, I have to say. Did you go through the Flash? Like, were you part of the Flash era? When I started, Flash was widely used. It was one of the most popular technologies. But I quickly went out of favor just because of how unwieldy the maintenance and the production was, right? And so I think something that came along in my first couple of years at one of the, the last agencies I read that is like better HTML and, and more motion that you can do outside of Flash. So Flash was a part of maybe the first year or two of my of my career and Even though it existed after that, we didn't favor it and we didn't choose to use it. So I know that you have you're a very creative person. You're into music. I know that you can draw also. So I like for you at least, what would be the main difference between doing art and doing design? Oh, that's a great question. I actually went to art school before I went to design school. <laughs> so I, I attended the San Francisco Art Institute, which is an old historical school in San Francisco. And I chose to go there because I was already dabbling as a teenager with installation art, building giant spaces that people can go through. And the school had a program called New Genres, which is time-based and experimental art. And in the 80s, and, and there was an era of performance art that came out of that school that I really admired. And so I decided to go there, and I dropped out after the first year. I got so depressed <laughs> at, how, at how remedial the thinking was and how the art world seemed to me at the time as a, as a late teenager to be very elitist. Art required a vocabulary and some kind of training and actually like privilege to be able to access fine art. 
And that really bummed me out. So I dropped out for a year and I decided, hey, you know what? Every day I use a fork. Every day I walk through a space. Somebody had to design that and that's art too. <laughs> Every day I look at advertisements and that's art too. And so I realized that design is art that's accessible to everybody because we're making things that people use but it requires all of the same creative skill sets and creative thinking as fine art. Like I can really tell a story through a product, right? And I don't know why people don't see like a piece of fine art as a product as well. I think the, the two are the same, but one just, you know, has so many barriers of entry. And in execution and in concept, I believe they're the same, but I feel like our society has drawn a huge wedge between the two. Yeah, I believe art, especially fine art, has the value or the economic value of fine art is way more subjective than the economic value of digital products because usually digital products are tied to a very clear business model and and are easier to put into like a business or economic sort of like context and perspective. Whereas fine art is like, Usually the value of that work comes from auctions uh, or comes from some curator who like determines what something is supposed to cost or, or the price of whatever piece or the fame of the, of the artist. Not really for the, it's not really for the economic impact or the social contribution, but more about, it's a lot more arbitrary. I think another element in that pricing model ed is exclusivity which is you know something's worth so much because there's only one piece that one very rich person can take and own and um, shield from everybody else from enjoying it and that's what bummed me out so much I was like, <laughs> I was like one you got to learn all this stuff to appreciate art which kind of sucks right because normal people for me having grown up as a refugee from Vietnam and being super poor as a child, I didn't appreciate that at all. <laughs> I was like, why isn't this stuff made for me? <laughs> yeah, you were more in contact with things that, that you saw every day. Yeah, exactly, right? Cars, products, food, plates, buildings. Yeah, you just made me think of, of this. There's, there's a really nice book that I really like by Henry Dreyfus, The Designing for People who was written like in the 40s or the 50s. I don't remember, a long time ago. And he was saying that mass-produced mass items is a form of art because there is value and there is art in improving everyone's life quality. And, and that kind of like stuck with me. He was saying like, like, like industrialization and mass-market produced goods are sort of like the, the modern art or the real modern art. And, and, you know, the difference is that everyone has access to them. Yeah. I think I'm lucky because I went to a very, I went to a high school that was very in tune with, with the creative and professional arts as a combination of things. I went to the performing and visual arts high school in Houston, Texas. And it's like a magnet public 
high school. But basically, you know, they introduced me to conceptual art, but they also introduced us to the concept that industrial materials can be used as art, and then also, like, media is art, right? Commercials and things like that. And so it really clicked in my brain in high school because previous to that, I just, I was a good drawer. Like, I, I, I drew and painted and all of that stuff as a child. But to have my eyes opened to the fact that the world is consistent of art objects and art thinking was like, wow, crazy, right? And that led me to, in high school, start making my own clothes, <laughs> like designing and, and like sewing my own clothes. My art installations started to include regular materials that you can just get at Home Depot, you know, the hardware store. Because I was introduced to people like Dan Flavin and like Donald Judd who were using building materials, regular, you know, fluorescent light fixtures from office buildings as artwork. And I was like, oh, damn, it doesn't need to just be like ultra expensive oil paints. <laughs> it could literally be empty soda bottles. Right? It's what you do with it and it's what your idea is. And that got me so excited. And like ever since then, my world has revolved around creativity without any media, like without any restrictions on, on what you use. Yeah, because ultimately it's about that transformation, like how you transform what's available to you into something else. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's affected the way that I work quite a bit, where the tool doesn't matter, the medium doesn't matter. The execution is just like, how do I figure out how to accomplish my goals? And how do I give the audience the experience that they need to achieve? It doesn't matter what I use. And so when I come into the workplace in the design professional realm, I'm like, you know what? Build this however you want to, however it's convenient and however it's scalable. And um, as long as it does the job. And so I think that... I think that just creates just a more longer term outlook on design. Yeah, so um, following that line of thought, what would you consider is good design? Like your own, your own concept of good design? I think, I mentioned this earlier, but I think accessibility, making things accessible to more people equals more better for me. <laughs> I don't know if that's good English, but you know, the, the, the easier it is for people to experience it, the better. Exclusivity, there's a time and place for exclusivity in experiences and design. And it doesn't make something bad that it's ex exclusive if that's, you know, if that's the intention, but when I take a look at a piece of design, whether it be a poster or a very complicated application on my phone, or even like, I don't know, a Mars rover, right? Can somebody look at that and say, oh yeah, that's what it does. Like, does someone get it right away? And 
if you can't snap your finger and have somebody get it, you probably do, the designer yourself, you probably have a lot of work to do to boil it down, to make it click. Yeah, so what, you're, what, what, what I'm getting from your concept is that it has to be, it's what people call intuitive, and it has to be something that people understand right away. If, like, if you, people are not able to understand it right away, it's because the message is hidden somehow, and it's not very clear. Yeah, if you take a look at a car, a person doesn't need to see all of the engine parts and all of the mechanics that happen under the hood. They just see a beautiful object that looks good and feels like it expresses their personality. Everything under the hood is like, that's the designer's job and the engineer's job. And so I'm not saying that you have to design something extra super simple all the time. It can be complicated, but put it behind, put it under the hood, right? There are several audiences for a piece of design. There's nerds like us that can pick apart all of the tiny inner workings. And then there's a normal person who just wants to press a button, get in their car, and have their butt warmed by the seat. <laughs> yeah. You made me think of this. There's this very famous museum in Paris that has these weird pipes and tubes and like, it's, it's called a Pompidou, I think, mm. and it has like these colorful like pipes. I don't know if they have if they have any functional role in the architecture of the building, but it's really weird, and I think it shocked a lot of people when they built it. I don't know if you you know which one I'm talking about. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's called the, the Pompidou, or just maybe if people Google weird museum in Paris, I'm pretty sure it's going to come up. <laughs> But I was just thinking about that because I, it was very clear that the, architect, the architects had a, a goal, which was like maybe like challenge what, what you consider like architecture in, in like for, for a museum or for a mm -hmm. building and then show all the ugly parts like mm. usually the pipes are like hidden and like they they put them in like inside canals inside like the walls and the roof and the and the ceiling but in this case and I, again i don't know if those pipes have have any functionality at all but they just put everything outside it's kind of like showing the, the all of the guts of, of yeah of the that's building. cool right and that's that's the conceptual part of it And I, I appreciate that. That was their intention. But without intention, and you're just not really thinking about how it's received by the audience, like, it could just be a big jumbled mess. Yeah. Uh, especially if you are creating something as risky as a digital product, and your intention is to sell it, because it's different when, you know, the government gives you money to, to build, like, a, a, a very special building. It's supposed to be special, but when you, what you're trying to do is what we were talking about earlier is like to create a mass market product that that's accessible for everyone. If it's hard to use, or and if people are not getting it, it's gonna be a huge financial failure. Yeah, I think the there's an added element of competition in our industry as designers because if you don't make it extra intuitive and extra frictionless someone else will and then the customer and the audience will gravitate toward that 
right? And so that's not that's something specific to the professional creative industry. Like you, that's something you have to take into account. That in other creative industries, maybe it's not as important. But for me, in the design industry, that's a direct translation into the music industry, right? How pop music just has to grab you right away, and then you're allowed to like ease in all of your conceptual and artsy stuff. But the challenge of slimlining everything, that's design, and that's a beautiful process. I love that. It's about what you remove, not about what you add. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you have any advice, or at least from your experience, any tips on how to train the eye for maybe people who are trying to like have a sharper vision when they look at a design or when they evaluate a solution? Do you have any like tips around that? I don't know if I'm confident enough to call it like a tip or something that I want to teach somebody, but I would say that my approach personally is to start from a very far away perspective, like super zoomed out and look at the big, big, big picture and then gradually get smaller and smaller and more zoomed in. And so you'll see me when I take a look at, let's just for a simple example, a one page layout of type and graphics and photos like I'll take a step way way back and see okay overall how does this feel and then I'll go in the medium level and then I'll go and start nitpicking the spacing of every letter and I think a lot of the people that I've worked with have re really appreciated that I can give them feedback on the overarching concept or whether or not things are appropriately, effectively achieving their goals. And then I'm able to like kind of pick up all the nuances after that. So give yourself some time to digest things on different levels of Zoom. I think to understand like the broad, the big picture, you have to understand the designer's intention. And so you can't just jump in and make a bunch of assumptions yourself. And so you have to ask questions like, what are you trying to do here? Because I could assume something totally wrong and give you all the wrong feedback. <laughs> right? Like I could be like, yo, your museum, all the pipes are on the outside, dude. It's so ugly. It's such an eyesore. And then the guy could be like, well, that's the point, dude. So if I didn't understand that ahead of time, I would make a fool of myself giving all this feedback. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the lens through which you are looking at the object or the composition or the design plays a huge part in how you interpret that that piece. Yeah, totally. And then, do you think attention to detail when it comes to especially digital design, do you think that's something that can be taught? Do you think that's a skill that can be developed? Yeah, absolutely. I think attention to detail is a skill that once you pick up, you apply it all over the place. And it's not something that's just magical that appears in people, right? It's something you train yourself to do. I think it's the equivalent of like being able to, I don't know, listen to language and like hear an accent. Like 
where you can kind of place where people are from based on their accent, right? And that's like a level of paying attention that you can train yourself to do over time. And so when you take a look at a piece of design, whether it be the experience or the visual display of it, or I don't know, all the other aspects of design, being able to hone in on how each element relates to the goal of the design is just like training yourself to connect that dot over and over and over. I do this thing on Instagram, Ed, that people, I'm sure people don't understand why I do it, but I create themes using a song. So I'll find images that relate to a song that expresses the concept. And I try not to make them super obvious, the connection between the two, but it, for example, I'll have like this song by Eddie Holman that <laughs> is really funny because the guy sings in like the highest falsetto voice ever. It's like a quiet, soothing music. And then the guy's just like, hey there, lonely girl. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> and my concept is to find a song that's funny like that and then connect it with an image that's a little bit off the beaten path that you don't instantly recognize as the two going together. And when I combine them, I find it funny, I find it entertaining. People message me and say, that's stupid, you're funny, blah, 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 right? But my intention behind doing that is to train my brain all the time to make those connections. And I have maybe three or four of those concepts, those songs, where I'm always looking for images or videos that relate to those concepts. And my brain's always ticking, right? Like, okay, how can I make this relate to that? But that's a training that when you take a look at attention to detail in a piece of design, you constantly relate it back to the theme or the concept or the goal of this piece. If it doesn't fit, does it need to be there? Ask yourself. Sometimes, yeah, it's cool, leave it in. But a lot of times you're like, wow, I could either consolidate this extra design piece with something else or I can remove it altogether, and that decreases the cognitive load for whoever's using your piece. So it's very useful for you to do those exercises in which you connect the two seemingly unrelated concepts, and it sort of like trains your brain to find connections between things. So when you're approaching a design composition or maybe music or something that's just in some way creative, you can relate that to the to the what you were t uh, referring to as the intention of the designer or the intention of the artist. Yeah, so let me take it back to that stupid song. Well, it's not a stupid song. That song that I'm using in a stupid way. That song is about this dude trying to pick up on a girl, right? But he's singing in this like crazy high falsetto. And you're like, what the hell? That's like normally not very attractive or masculine. Like, that's not a masculine way to pick up on a girl. And so I find images that are like people or animals or objects that seemingly look like they're supposed to be appealing or uh, attractive, but they're obviously not. <laughs> and so that's the concept there. And then I have a bunch of other songs where like the images are like, you know, supposed to be one or two levels separated from the original concept. And so it challenges people to make those connections. Like it's not obvious right away. 
So you have to connect it in one level, and then maybe your brain turns around and, and connects it into another, on another level. And for me, that's, those are the exercises that like challenge my brain to keep thinking, okay, conceptually, how do I connect these two? And that skill, I think, is what, is what helps me pay attention to detail and always connecting back to the original source. That's super interesting. So th basically, you create your own brain teasers to force yourself to like find connections in things that maybe are unrelated. And then when you're approaching a design where everything is supposed to be related, yes. you can <laughs> you can identify the, the the things that are off. Yeah, and that's just a an exercise that I came up with for myself. That's a fun activity. It's I didn't necessarily come up with it to train my design brain or anything but that's just something fun and challenging that i do and i think people can come up with their own ways to challenge their brain but it's a muscle you exercise and you were asking earlier is this something you learn yeah it is it's something you figure out ways to learn but you have to exercise it constantly you can't you got to keep yourself sharp yeah what about like finding typos and things like that. Do you think it applies for those things as well? I don't expect every designer to be to be able to or have the interest in catching typos and using language in the academically correct way. Right? That's a high bar to achieve. I try to train and I try to convince all of my designers and everyone I work with to like be more mindful of that stuff. But there's definitely a role or a person that should be an editor. And no design should ship without an editor taking a look at it. Like you don't see newsrooms and newspapers publishing stuff without an editor. Right? <laughs> In the design world, it should be the same thing. Like you shouldn't produce a, a, a screen for an app or a page on a website without a second trained eye taking a look at it. And so I don't, I don't expect the designer themselves to be their own editor. That usually does not provide great results because you're so close to the process. You've been looking at it for year, 10 hours at a time. You're probably fatigued. The information no longer means anything to you. <laughs> and so for a designer, yeah, pay attention to it, but like you definitely want to bring someone else in to take to take a second like critical eye at it. I think that's very very important for someone uh, someone else to take a look at the design before it ships. I mean, like you were saying, like every other editorial process has an editor or yeah, someone who is responsible for the quality that's going to be delivered and catches all of those things before they um, reach the, intent, the intended audience. So I think it's very interesting because you're right, the designer is concerned with a thousand things that do not include catching those typos. And yeah, sometimes as managers, we are you know expecting the designers <laughs> to like catch all of those things. But the reality is that I don't really think that's how the brain works. The brain is, the brain is thinking about like shapes and colors and like concepts. And they're looking at words as, as shapes. They're not yeah. looking at words as, as information. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, over time, 
the words lose meaning the content loses meaning because you're involved in solving this huge puzzle this very huge puzzle and the text and the words are just one of the elements maybe initially they have meaning to you but like as you're working on it over hours and hours and hours it just becomes another piece of the puzzle that you're like trying to sort out you can train yourself to like have a critical eye like that during the process but sometimes it slows down the process. So I would either suggest people take a long break and then come back and put on their editor's hat or send it to somebody else who acts as their editor. But like every other industry has an editing round. The design industry needs to, I think, be more strict about that. And probably also it's a good idea to define content before you're messing with the visuals. That way you can work on the content when like before you have to like shrink it or make it bigger or like make it fit into a layout. I think that can help too. Yeah. And you know, that's a job that usually a designer is not doing, right? Usually somebody's producing the content elsewhere. I agree with you, Ed, that you can try to do that ahead of time as much as possible. But I think there's also like there, there should be a built in time where you can revise based on the content actually sitting in the environment in which it will exist in the final iteration. I don't know why it's hard for industry designers to or the industry as a whole to understand that things create elements created in a vacuum don't always come together like seamlessly when they come together you've got to do some troubleshooting you're allowed to change your copy to make it read and and look better i think people are much better about that now but I think that it's something that people overlook all the time. They think that like, all right, someone's going to create a copy deck. This is going to go on a website. Boom, it's done. But, but as, especially with like gigantic corporate projects, the teams are so siloed. The teams are so separate from each other. And there's oftentimes not enough effort put into doing a round where like we massage everything so that they congeal together well. Yeah, that's very interesting. And okay, so let's say you're doing the role uh, of an editor, or at least you're in some capacity making sure that the quality of the deliverable is good. How do you approach providing feedback to the designers that you're working with? How do I approach providing feedback? I think number one is I always come in with the assumption, the right, the correct assumption that these designers are experienced. <laughs> they're talented people. They're smart MFs, right? When you forget that you're approaching someone equally or more talented or more smart than you, like, you're not a good boss. 
<laughs> just assume that whoever you're working with is better than you at what you're doing. So that's number one. You know, I come in, even if it's a junior designer, they're there for a reason. They got hired because they're talented. You hired them because they're talented. So that's number one. Re have that respect for the other person. Number two, I would say that the approach to feedback is to constantly convey that you are a part of their team. You're offering another skill set to make this thing better or the best it could be. You're not here to reprimand or punish or call out people's mistakes. You're here as a team member, as a cheerleader to say, hey, look, I'm another perspective. I'm not the right perspective. So, you know, I, I think those two are the keys to the way that I approach talking with, with the designers that I work with. I think the last element is not one of like the, the main pillars, but it's something that you have to practice, which is learn how to communicate in a way that is concise, is always, again, connecting back to the primary goal or the primary purpose why you're there. If you come up and you talk a bunch of stuff that is, you know, you're making a bunch of like diversions to other topics and stuff, you're going to lose your audience, your designer, the person who you're there to work with. They're going to be like, what is this person talking about? And I've had that experience quite a bit where, you know, there's bosses that just want to, or, or team members that just want to express their philosophy behind a lot of stuff. And it always doesn't, or it doesn't always connect back to the purpose of why you're there. Like, dude, I'm just here to like solve this button color. <laughs> I'm not here to like learn about your childhood. So that's a skill you constantly have to like remind yourself of, like keeping things concise and to the point and always connected to the end goal. Okay, so I have respect their talent. They're there for a reason. And if you don't think they're good for that job, why did you hire them? Exactly. Um, and if you I, didn't a, hire them, Ed, somebody else did, respect that other person that hired this person, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't and agree, if you don't agree, go and talk to the other person, but provide very clear feedback as to why you think they're they're not working. Chances are they're going to, if you do it respectfully and with very without with good intentions, pretty pretty sure that they're going to respect your your feedback and they're gonna take it into consideration. Act as a partner. Like I, I love what you said that I'm not here to like give you orders. I'm here to like help you create something great and solve this puzzle together. And the third one, which is, I think it applies across the board for all sorts of communication or, or matters that require communicating ideas is be concise. I'll go straight to the point. People will respect that. So in the, in the, in the topic of being concise and, <laughs> and, and being very mindful of how you convey a message, how do you explain design concepts to clients? And let's just like, 
to clarify a little bit, let's assume that the client is an expert in whatever industry they're coming from. They're not a design expert. How do you explain these concepts? Like, do you have any advice for people who want to improve the way they like explain their reasoning to their clients? Yeah, absolutely. And this, I mean, to, I think to some people this might be like a node thing, but I took a lot of influence from the presentations that Steve Jobs gave when he was alive and, and do, you know, the resurgence of Apple because he connected every single keynote, every single product unveiling, product demo to the, how it's going to affect the person. I always make this comparison. You can list a bunch of features and like throw out a bunch of buzzwords, but if you don't say what it means to the end user or the person that is using your product, there's not that emotional connection. And emotion and like ownership is so much more of a driving force to than technical details. And so let's say your client is really awesome at manufacturing forks, right? <laughs> Utensil manufacturer. When you des explain design to them, uh, specifically in like technology or digital design, my suggestion would be like, skip all of the jargon, skip all of the technical details and explain why it matters to them, their business and their audience. Like, you know, there's that, what, a thousand songs in your pocket or whatever to, to demo the original iPod versus, I don't know, when Zune, Microsoft created the brown colored Zune <laughs> MP3 player. They were telling about like gigabytes of data and like, you know, transfer speeds. I don't know exactly what they were saying, but it was a lot of technical details. And they failed to make the connection about what it means to the actual music listener. Like all you have to say is there's going to be a thousand songs that you can put in your pocket while you're running on the treadmill. And that connects the person emotionally. It makes them visualize how this functions in their world, their daily existence. So when you're talking to somebody who's not trained design professional, like look at them, study them, right? How can I make a metaphor that my product fits into their daily life? And when you explain it in that way, they'll be like, oh, wow, that's powerful. When you use a bunch of jargon and technical lingo, I'll be like, all right, these, these are nerds. I don't care. Just do your job. Leave us alone. We'll pay you. That's very interesting because I feel like it connects back to what we were saying earlier that you have to be mindful of who's the audience, whether you're designing, trying to communicate a concept to a designer, uh, sorry, to, uh, to your audience or to your client. You have to be very uh, mindful of who's receiving that message because that's going to frame the way you're going to communicate it. Probably if you're selling this, to go back to your example, probably if you're selling that very technical product or MP3 player and your target is engineers that work in server rooms, that's probably the way to go because that those concepts make a lot of sense to them because they are familiar with 
how much uh, a gigabyte of storage means and the processor speed and whatnot. But obviously, that was not the target of the of that product. Well, I think, yeah, that's that's true, Ed. But I still think you need to put it into a wrapper of how all of these de details translate into real life use. Even if you're talking to engineers who are experienced with all the lingo and all the data and all of the specs, right? It can just be a bunch of numbers. Like you can lose track of the meaning just like a designer loses track of the content and the, and the words in their designs. You got to reconnect it to like, how's this going to affect the real world? And what are, what are we here for to achieve? And that's the goal right for everybody for the whole team like enough music to install a rack mounted server and <laughs> <laughs> no i guess what i'm saying is song. i guess what i'm saying is all that stuff is the, the under the hood stuff the the technical details and you need to know your your shit you need to understand all of that stuff and you need to have it If somebody asks, you need to be ready to pull that data out. But you need to have the wrapper of real life, how this affects real life. And that's how you connect with people instantly. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs is a cliche for a reason. I've seen some old school presentations he gave and talking to like developers and engineers. And he did understand all of these technical concepts and he could talk about what was really going under the hood but when he's actually presenting instead of like just talking to engineers but actually presenting his language is so simple i think i read somewhere that like when you run it through some algorithm it's like equivalent to like what a what a child could understand and so it's not about showing off with your fancy vocabulary It's about making it so simple that people are not thinking about your words. They're thinking about the message that you're trying to, to communicate. Yeah, and the message needs to allow them to visualize how this thing you're talking about relates to their lives, you know, or how it relates to their customers. And... That is a design feat within itself. That takes some thinking, like pre-planning. I think a lot of times we as designers think that our job is just to design and make something, but to share it with somebody else, we need to take a minute out of our day, a few minutes out of our day, to organize those thoughts so that we can convey the meaning and the purpose first before we jump into like the design process and all the technical details. Yeah, I really like this concept of the inverted pyramid, which came from journalism, because journalists have to like catch your attention first and like give you sort of like the one-liner that explains what's going on. And then you can, with that information, you can decide whether or not you want to read the entire article or the entire column in the newspaper back in the day. I think it's very helpful for designers to like train themselves in, in those like delivery methodologies and say, okay, so this is what we're going to talk about, frame the conversation, and then start adding details as the conversation uh, continues. 
Yeah, I think that's something I learned in high school at art art school. I mean, because I went to that arts high school and we did, they were called critiques, art critiques, where you would present your, your whatever you're working on. And for the first year, man, I got killed. <laughs> it was so bad. I was like super nervous all the time. English is my second language. And so when I think about a thought, it's in this abstract conceptual manifestation first. And then there's a layer of translating into the language that I'm going to convey it in. So it could go in Vietnamese or it could go in English. So I think for a lot of native English speakers, it's more natural, right? They have a thought. It's probably in English already. And so I struggled that first year because I would just say a lot of words, but it would never really connect to the central concept of what my art piece was about. And I got murdered <laughs> in these critiques. <laughs> and I made a deliberate decision to be like, all right, I need to learn how to speak better. And then I realized it wasn't about the language. It was about the organization of my thoughts. Like I have to puke it all out there first and then rearrange it in a way that people, one, you say, inverted pyramid, get the concepts right away. And then I'll go into the medium level where, you know, I start expanding. And then when people request, you can go in the hyper details. A lot of times our natural inclination is to tell a story chronologically from beginning to end in terms of time. But <laughs> I mean, I discovered pretty early that like chronological is confusing. You can take so long listening to the background data before you get the point of the story. And so if you think ahead and you plan a little bit, you can tease people with the concept first, and then you can start, you know, chronologically or not chronologically outlining the story that you're telling. And so in high school, that was the beginning of it. And it was a deliberate decision on my part to like, I need to work on this. My English sucks. My speaking sucks. And then it wasn't until I got into the professional world where I started working for ad agencies and stuff that I realized, wow, on a professional level, this is what people do every day. They have to rearrange their complex thoughts, throw away all the de detailed things and just hone in on what matters. And, you know, and I was like, God, that <laughs> that's something everyone should learn. <laughs> it's like the trailer for the movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the cool thing about trailers is it leaves a lot out so that you want to go see the movie. That's exactly the inverted pyramid. Uh, ideally, when it's ideally applied, is that it's a teaser. It's like we're giving you just enough for you to make your decision if this is for you or not. And then if you're interested, we already have your attention. We can go into the details because we already like have you. But yeah. if you still don't have me, <laughs> the details are not going to make me come, come closer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I also want to know a little bit about how, how knowing about design and communication and knowing how to deliver a message has impacted your other creative activities. 
Yeah, great question, Ed. So like I said earlier, right now I write and produce music with most of my time. But my background in design and arts, I think maybe three results of, of that. The first one is we, what we were just talking about with making what I communicate more concise and always related to the end goal. That translates to pop music and any music really, really well. You can get on stage and just like spaz out for an hour and there's a time and place for that, you know? Or you can create a song that's like under four minutes that condenses that one hour of spazzing out. And that song needs to just have a purpose. So that's number one. Number two is it made me realize that in, in music or in art or in anything is more important than medium. And so that's inspired me to not be a purist in any way. I don't, I think if it gets the job done, I don't care what you're using to achieve that. Right? I don't, it's cool to limit your palette, but like, Basically what I'm saying, there's no rules. <laughs> like, everything is at your fingertips to use to, to serve your purpose. And that's something my professional life in design has given my other art. It's just the whole world is my oyster, which feels really good, right? And then the third one is to not treat your audience like idiots. Like the third one, I guess is so important because having worked in professional design and advertising and marketing, you have to respect your audience. You have to assume that they are equal to you or better than you in terms of, you know, being smart people. I think designs suck when they assume that people are dumb. I think cartoons or children's content, children's media sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's not as good if it assumes that the kids are stupid. Which is why like Pixar movies are so popular. They assume that parents are watching with their kids. And they don't assume the kids are stupid. They assume the kids will pick up on these complex emotional concepts like because they're smart, intuitive humans. And so that's the third thing that my design career has affected all of my art stuff. I like don't take my audience for granted ever. I love that. I'm a big fan of Pixar movies. I think they're my yeah. favorite animated movies. Because first of all, the quality of animation is is the best out there. And second, because their their stories are unconventional. They are, like you said, usually the, the story is a lot more complex than the your like everyday children's movie or like princess movie. They are dealing with very with like emotions that probably kids are has still haven't been able to experience and somehow they make those emotions like part of the story 
and like explain it in a way like you were saying they, they don't assume people are stupid they just tell the story in a way that they'll understand so instead of using complex language they use expressions like you know facial expressions and like body language and sound and and movement to convey that that message instead of like trying to like you know either going and, and treating everyone like stupid and like just like using like this broken language that some cartoons use or you know the other extreme which, which is also bad which is like using language that kids will not understand i think that a huge part of the success of those movies is even when they're using a simplified character like wall e or something right this robot is really hard to convey emotion through its facial expressions. It's just a little box. They connect events and emotions back to something that the audience can relate to their own lives. And so they're constantly looking for like, how do I make this relevant to a, a person's normal everyday life? And so I think that's what emotionally grasps people like, oh, I can relate to this because I kind of see myself in this. And I think that is where in any design or any art, like that's where the key is. That's where the magic is. Can someone relate to this and see themselves in your art? Wow. This has been such a deep conversation, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about rewatching some Pixar movies tonight. Bao, thank you so much for your time. Um, like always, I feel like we can just keep talking the whole yeah, day. Seriously. But I, I don't know if people are going to be up for like two or three hours. But yeah, you made me like look at some concepts, like reevaluate some concepts. I don't think we ever had, even though we've talked many times about design and stuff. You like gave me a new perspective on a, on a few concepts today that I think were very interesting. And I hope other people will find it as valuable as I did. Where can people go to learn more about your band, your music, and all of your creative endeavors? So my name is Bao, and it's spelled B-A-O. And if you're typing that in using an iPhone, nine out of ten times, you're going to get auto-corrected, and it'll turn into BOA, B-O-A. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you just get past spelling my name correctly... You can find my music at heyitsbao.com. I had a band previously called Ming and Ping for the last, I don't know, 12 years or something. And you can find all of my music on all of the streaming platforms. But, you know, I think you can just reach out to me at heyitsbao.com. I also have an interview show that I do. I recently switched to a bi-weekly schedule, but it used to be weekly. And it's just like a 40-minute conversation about people's cultural identities, their backgrounds, their creative process. And they're really human conversations, even though I'm talking to these very established professionals, right? I assume that all of their work stuff is taken care of elsewhere or has been written about elsewhere. And I really ask them questions about them as people, as humans. That's something... That's probably the coolest project I've come up with in, in years, in a decade. <laughs> and so if somebody wants to look up Bao and find my work or whatever, Coffee with Bao, my show, is probably 
the most revealing and the most in-depth way to learn about me and my creativity and the people that I care about. That's awesome. For those of you who actually managed to find the show notes, I usually put the links in there, but I know like in Spotify, it's really hard to find the links. So yeah, it's B-A-O and then everything else you can rewind and listen to like <laughs> the other websites. <laughs> so Bao, thanks again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope the travel restrictions... Yes, ease up a little bit. You know, ease up a little bit so that uh, I can come visit you in LA or you can come to Europe and then we can go and, and uh, do a little trip around the old continent. But until then, it was a lot of fun. It was very yeah. interesting. And, and I wish you a great weekend. Thank you, Ed. As always, I like you said earlier, I can talk to you for hours and hours. I wanted to thank you for having me on, but also just express my gratitude that you respect my opinion and my insights enough to talk to me for an hour and share my thoughts with other people. That's super cool. I, you know, I'm super grateful for that. So thank you very much. And yeah, I hope we can hang out soon because I'm tired of sitting around by myself for yeah. over a year now. <laughs> <laughs> totally sucks. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Ed. <laughs>